This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. It was August 21st, 2017. My friend and I woke up in our tent, cleaned up our gear, and started out early. That's what six o'clock in the morning looks like. We got, we're going to have four four hours from now to get there, so let's do it. We hiked most of the day before and only had a few miles left to go. Most of them were pretty easy. Summit of the peak with an hour and 15 minutes to spare. Now we just got to wait. A couple dozen people were up there with us, enjoying snacks, adding a layer to keep warm, waiting for the right moment. It looked like a dark storm cloud was coming over the distant mountain pass, right at us. And then the world got weird. It felt like nighttime, but it was nearly noon. People looked up at the sun, which was eclipse. Honestly, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. I love you all right now. (laughs) This was the total eclipse of the sun. We got to see it from the top of a mountain right in the path of totality, where the sun is most covered by the moon. You know what we didn't see that day, though? The end of the world. You see, there was this rumor going around that the world was going to end on that day for a lot of reasons, one of which was this, that if you followed that long arc that the eclipse made across the United States and laid it on a map, and then you took the long arc that the next eclipse will make in 2024 and put that on the same map, they intersect in a lazy looking X shape crossing over Missouri. To those who love this kind of thing, that X looks suspiciously like the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which can be taken to mean mark, sign, or covenant. And it would be seven years until the next eclipse, the same amount of time that the tribulation is supposed to take. There was also a complicated theory about how the temperature of the sun was the same as the year 2017 in the Hebrew calendar. All of them were sure signs that the world was going to end. Except it didn't. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, 
or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. My friend and pastor, Ray McDaniel, has this list. Can you tell me about this list that you have? So, I have a list. It's about the end of the world, or about people who think they know the time of the end of the world. It's actually a list that I got from, really from childhood. I knew some of these things, not all these things, but I I grew up and I was born in 71, so I grew up in the 70s and the Jesus Freak movement and some of those early, uh, maybe not early, but Christian films like A Thief in the Night and things like that. We had the late great planet Earth songbook. Like that was one of the, <laughs> we really did. The late great planet Earth songbook. And one of the songs, it, it might not have been in that book, but it was in another one that was lift up your head, your redemption draweth nigh. And it was keep your eyes on the eastern skies. And it was very much anticipating the return of Christ, which I do anticipate the, re- the second coming of Jesus. Growing up in that environment had him thinking about the end times. When Jesus will return and the world goes through judgment. Ray grew up, became a missionary, and then became a pastor. I just started going through the list in my head before I was preparing a sermon one Sunday of all these people who had made predictions just in my lifetime. And then it got to be interesting, so when I studied it, I kind of started keeping up with the list. He's preached on the topic a few times, sharing this list he has of people who claim that they knew when the end of the world was coming. When that... uh, Eclipse was coming through, I started getting from the congregation and from other people around lots of questions and lots of uh, suggestions and lots of predictions, end time type predictions. Yet the eclipse of 2017 was not the end of the world. The truth is that predictions of the end of the world are not rare and they aren't even new. They've been going on really since the beginning of the early church since shortly after Jesus ascended. People want to know the day. Not all of them are Christians, either. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, guessed the date at least twice. For example, in 1835, he said it would happen within 56 years. You can find that in Volume 2, Chapter 13 of their official church history. 1835 plus 56 equals 1891. Did the world end in 1891? No. Jehovah's Witnesses have changed their minds a couple of times, but once believed that the world would end in 1914. What about evangelical Christians? John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, said it would happen in 1836. Remember 1995? That's when Left Behind Fever started, based on books written by Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. They were fictionalized accounts of what it might look like in the end times. Complete, of course, with a corresponding kids version. They didn't predict the date, but they did reignite rapture, rapture. Back when I made Christian films, there were two guys you really had to impress if you wanted to make a lot of sales. Jack Van Empe and John Hagee. They were the kingmakers. If you got their endorsement, you'd sell thousands of copies. We, we didn't get their endorsement. Jack Van Empe set the date as 2012. And that didn't happen. John Hagee wrote a book on the blood moon prophecy, which also predicted the end. He shied away from an exact date, but, you know. Then there was Harold Camping. 
Camping was the host of a show called Open Forum for 50 years. He was the Bible answer guy. People called in with questions about the Bible and he tried to answer them. He was a proponent of something called numerology, or the idea that the Bible speaks in code through numbers. If we could just interpret them, we'd know all sorts of mysteries, like the date of the apocalypse. He started predicting the end in the 1970s without causing much hoopla. Then he predicted that the world would end May 21st, 1988. It didn't. He then published a book called 1994, with a question mark, which set the date for September of 1994. Then there was one in 2011. Camping and his followers got 5,000 billboards and had materials printed in 75 different languages. There's a risk of this sounding funny, and maybe it is a little bit. We have to remember that this stuff doesn't stay inside of the bubble of those easily convinced of nutty ideas. When a person of authority says that the end of the world is coming, people are going to take that to heart. They're going to change their habits, rack up credit card bills, avoid important medical care, or take their own lives. The New York Times reported that a man who tried to reach God across a lake drowned. And there was a woman who tried to kill herself and her two daughters rather than face the end of the world. Did Harold Camping apologize for his false claims? Yes, but only to change his date to October 21st, 2011. So, no. The truth is, it makes us all look ridiculous when these predictions don't come true, and yet they keep coming. There are whole conferences based on the end times. They draw thousands of people in and entice them with gory details of coming destruction. Fear-based, mostly. And fear, usually, gives you an audience. When these predictions don't come through, it gives non-Christians good reason to be suspicious. So, to my non-Christian friends who are listening, let me say, these guys, they were wrong. Those who say they were Christians dragged the name of Christ through the mud sometimes very publicly, like say on 5,000 billboards. And the founders of those other religions that I mentioned also proved who they really were. What do you call a person who prophesies and it doesn't come true? A false prophet. Jesus specifically told us we would not know the day of his return. He said that in Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. We don't know the day. We can't know the day. Matthew 24, 36 is a dead giveaway. The Bible states, obviously, that Christ will return, that there will be a judgment, and it's going to be ugly, and it says that there will be signs when it's coming. But the Bible can't be clearer than this. We won't know the date. And about all those signs of Jesus returning, they can be somewhat vague. 2 Thessalonians 2 has some of them. Let's go back to my talk with Ray McDaniel. He reads commentaries when planning his sermons and came across some really interesting comments on this passage from 2 Thessalonians. So as I was looking through, I uh, saw what Augustine, St. Augustine, had to say about it. He's a theologian, philosopher, author, you know, churchman, songwriter. Uh, anyway, he 
speaking of this interesting passage, he said, I confess that I am entirely ignorant of what he means to say. (laughs) I confess that I am entirely ignorant of what he means to say. And I thought, wow, that's a statement of humility. But there are other respected commentators too, like Martin Vincent said, I attempt no interpretation of this passage as a whole, which I do not understand. But everybody's got an opinion on it. And when they're writing these books, it comes up over and over and over again. And like Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth or those, they, they bring this to it. F.F. Bruce is another one of my favorites. Um, and he says, there are few New Testament passages which can boast such a variety of interpretations as this. Those are all respected theologians. And what do they say about Second Thessalonians? They admit that they don't fully understand it. The Bible does this in multiple places. It tells us the truth, but keeps some of it kind of vague. We don't know when Jesus is returning. We know he will come back. We just don't know when. That kind of open-endedness is hard for a lot of us. We don't want God to surprise us with something. So some of us invent ways of trying to fill in the gaps ourselves. So I think a ripe place for heresy is anytime we have scant scriptural information or vague, in some ways it is vague, um, scriptural information, and then we try to put too fine a point on it. If, to, in, in my opinion, if scripture is vague, um, we, sh- we can stand to be vague. Well, there's that thing you've mentioned a couple times uh, when preaching, uh, that there's always a temptation when you preach the gospel day after day after day. There's a, there's a temptation to be clever. Yeah, absolutely. Novelty is not to be sought. <laughs> that was, I was an art student before I was a pastor, and I had a professor that said that pretty often. He said, novelty or being clever is not what you're going for. Uh, what we're after is a search for truth and beauty. And so... Um, yeah, it, it does get to be tempting after you've said the same thing over and over and over, and it comes back to the message of the cross, you know, basically that, that Jesus lived a perfect life and died a perfect sacrificial death. And that clear, clean account is available for anyone who would put their trust and faith in him. That's a simple, succinct statement of the, the Christian gospel. And after you've said that so many times, um, I think there is a temptation uh, to want to just spice it up a little bit and maybe add something to it or, ta- or maybe take something away. Um, there is there is that temptation, but sticking to what it says, I think, is really, really important and not adding to it and not being so convinced of your own opinion that you start sharing that as if it were actual holy writ. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that is tempting. Yeah, it is. Even having done... 10 episodes of this podcast. I feel like I need to be clever with the yeah. 11. Yeah, know? yeah. Truce is a listener-supported podcast. You can find us on patreon.com where you can set up monthly installments to help me out a little bit if you like what you hear. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those where you can find links to bonus materials that relate to each episode. Our website is trucepodcast.com where you can find our fascinating and unobtrusive email list and links to my novel Cradle Robber and my movies Bringing Up Bobby and Between the Walls, which are now streaming on Amazon and PureFlix. While on the site, check out the show notes for this episode for some handy reference material. 
Our logo is by Andy Huff. Our website is by the amazing Roy Browning of the Business Acumen Podcast. Thanks to Nick Starin for acting as a sounding board. And finally, thanks to Pastor Ray McDaniel for his help. If you want to hear more episodes like this, please tell a friend. Yeah, you. Take out your phone and help us spread the word. While your phone is out, record a voice memo telling us what you think of the show and what you'd like to hear in future episodes and email it to trucepodcast at yahoo.com. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.